0: So we talked last week, talked about a Charlie Brown Christmas, right? Everybody's like, wow, that's, that's deep. Well, we did start off with a video, and it was how Linus was given his little soliloquy, his monologue from Luke chapter 2 as he was talking about the real reason for Christmas, and Charlie Brown exclaims, you know, can somebody tell me what Christmas is all about? And, and Linus gets up there, and he's on stage, and... He's speaking, right? And he's, he's reciting Luke chapter 2 to everybody. And there's this particular spot in there where Linus drops his blanket. And we talked about that and how Charles Schultz decided to make a statement there. And it was when he said the words, fear not, Linus gets rid of his blanket. He, he drops it. Now his security blanket is what he what he always had with him, it was his, his place of security. It was, as a lot of kids do, you know, is, is the thing they held on to. It's always there. It, it provides security for them because it never goes away, right? And they hang on to it. Well, in this particular scene, Linus drops his blanket. And uh, I got a Christmas present today. Somebody gave me a little vinyl Linus there. So I got him up on the pulpit. I don't typically have vinylmation up on the pulpit, but I do today. So uh, that's my little, little vinyl Linus up there. But we talked about last week how... We tend to put our faith and our trust in what we can see and what our, our hope exists a lot of times in what we can do and our abilities and, and all of these kinds of things. And, and when Jesus came to the world, it turned all of that on his head. It, it, Jesus was saying, No longer is it about what you can do. You see, the Pharisees had gotten everything all mixed up and they, they thought it was all about what they could do. But God wanted to show through His Son, Jesus Christ, it's all about what He did and what He could do through His Son, Jesus Christ. So there was, if you rely on yourself, you have a lot of reason to fear. But if you rely on Jesus Christ, you have a lot of reason to fear not. And that's why we pointed that out in Luke chapter 2. Because at that moment, fear not. That changed everything. When Jesus Christ entered into the world, it changed everything. And we no longer had a reason to fear. You know, we just sang a song, I'm No Longer Slaves to Fear, right? We talked about that. I mean, we sang that song, and, and what that really means is, is we're, we're, we don't have to be slaves anymore. We have been set free through the person of Jesus Christ that we don't have to be fearful. And that's exactly what Luke chapter 2 is all about. And how many times have you heard the Christmas story and just glanced right over that? That, that because of Jesus Christ, you have a reason not to fear anymore. Because it's not about what you can do. It's not about what you can I would be terrified if it was, if it was my responsibility to make my way to heaven, to, to my responsibility to do enough things to be in good graces with God. That would be reason enough to tremble in fear because there's no way. When you consider the glory of God and I look at my pitiful life and I look and see, man, what am I capable of doing? There's nothing. I would be in terrible fear if I was relying on myself in order to be put in the presence of God. But because of Jesus Christ, now it becomes fear, not. Too many times we put our faith and our hope and our trust in what we can see and not what we cannot see. So I'm going to show you another cartoon. Um, it's Christmas, right? It's okay, y'all cut me some slack. I've shown you two cartoons in, in, in two weeks. Y'all cut me a little bit of slack. I like Christmas cartoons. Sue me, you know what I mean? Like, if you... Uh, if, if you don't like my Christmas cartoons, let me know. We can let you come up here and speak on Sunday mornings or something. We'll work on that, all right? All right, so let's, let's show our cartoon. Watch your step. Watch your step. It's tricky walking up here. It's mighty slick. Mighty slick, I tell you. There you go. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? Years ago, on my first Christmas Eve run, I was up on the roof, making my rounds, when I slipped on the ice myself. I reached out for a hand iron, but it broke off. I slid and fell, and yet, I did not fall off this train. Someone saved you? Or something. An angel? Maybe. Wait, wait! Well, well, what did he look like? Did you see him? No, sir. But sometimes seeing is believing. And sometimes the most real things in the world are the things we can't see. Sometimes the most real things in the world are the things we can't see. Right now, it's, it's Christmas Day. And uh, some of us have a lot of heartache. Maybe because of somebody that we love that's close to us has passed away. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe it's a wayward child. Maybe it's because you're suffering with some sort of illness on your own and and there's, there's something that just is not right in your own body and you're struggling to see why. You're struggling to see how... God could allow this to happen. How anything good could come out of what's going on with me, what's going on with my family, how anything good could come out of this, because it looks like destruction. It looks like that, that nothing good could possibly happen as a result of what's going on in my life right now. My hope and my prayer is this, is that if, as we look at what God did, as we look at what, what, what God was doing through His Son, Jesus Christ, so we'll be able to see That God is constantly at work. And God is doing something greater than we can possibly imagine. And though we cannot see exactly what God is doing, it is marvelous, it is beautiful. It may look like destruction in our eyes. It may look like we're being crushed on every side. We may look like we're about to break, that we're bending so far that we're just about to die. But God's still at work. God's still doing something. That, that he can see so much further down the road than we can. That when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ, and we put our, our trust in what God is doing, when we get a heavenly perspective of things, we don't see things the way that we're used to seeing them. We see things the way that God sees them. I, I pray that through this, this Christmas story that we're going to read this, morning, this evening, is that you will see... That God was at work long, long, long before Jesus Christ was born into a manger. And we're going we're to look at the fact that, I mean, throughout the Old Testament, there's, there, there's, there's thousands of references to a Messiah that would come. There's thousands of things where, where God was telling people that there's going to there's gonna be something different one day. And what you think is going on is not really what's going on. It's going to be different one day. And I I just want us to look at one particular example that you may have missed. And some of you that were with us at Simple Church last year, you may recognize me telling this story, but it is so important because so many people overlook this. Let's look at Matthew chapter 2. Let's look at what God's Word has to say to us. Everybody's familiar with this story. Says Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, how many wise men were there? Ha! Thank you, somebody's saying, we don't know. Thank you, Holly, I appreciate that. Your Christmas cards would tell you there was three, okay? There were three of them, right? They'll even make up some names for them, and like... Yeah, so I, look, I don't even know where some of the stuff comes from. But anyway, so there's this idea that there were three wise men, right? There were three wise men that came to see Jesus when he was born. Well, it's not true on many levels, but number one, there wasn't three, all right? There wasn't three. Holly's been here before. She cheated. She knows that. So she's heard me preach this message about five times. So anyway, so there weren't just three of them. Uh, we like to have... Uh, something we can put on a Christmas card. So we like to put three. We, they're on camels, right? They're dressed really nice. They got some cool hats. You know, if I had a hat, I would have a wise man hat. You know, I'm like, that's the way they look, right? So we know what they look like on the Christmas cards, but that's not exactly the scriptural account. So we, we see here that there are some, some wise men that come from the east. Have you ever questioned what, who are these wise men and what are they doing there? We know that they came to worship Jesus, the newborn Savior of the world. We know that He is the King of the Jews, according to the wise men. It says it right there. They've come to worship Him. Have you ever wondered who these guys were? Maybe you've wondered if there were really three of them. Let's go on and read, and then I'll try to fill you in a little bit. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is, why, this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be a shepherd for my people Israel. So here we've got some men. And it says they came from an eastern land. We know that uh, you ever heard the term Magi, right? You've heard the term Magi. These are the Magi, right? You've heard that term. And we know that they came from the east, so when you think about why, 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 why are these guys coming from the east? Where did they come from? What were they doing there? How did they know that, that there was going to be a Messiah born? How did they know to follow this star? How did they know this stuff, right? Well, there's got to be some question in your mind about where did that come from? Well, I've got, a, I've got an idea for you. I'm going to throw this at you. We've talked about, we've been talking about Nehemiah here recently, right? We've been talking about the exile into Babylon. And we've been talking about how the Israelites were taken into captivity and they were taken away from their homeland. And they were taken into this place in the east, in Babylon. Now, we know that a lot of things happened when they were in captivity in Babylon, right? One of those things that happened when they were in captivity was a guy named Daniel. Daniel lived approximately 500 years before Christ, while the people of Israel were in captivity, and Daniel had this, this very cool ability to interpret dreams. God had given him this ability to interpret dreams, and when King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that he needed interpreting, nobody, none of his wise men could, that lived in Babylon could interpret his dreams. Notice I said wise men. None of the wise men in Babylon could interpret the dreams. You know what the name of these wise men were? There were a special tribe of people called the Magi. The Magi. So I, y'all hang with me for just a minute. I don't know if you can put all this together when I'm getting at here, but let's look at Daniel chapter 2 for just a second. I don't want this up on the screen. I want you to just kind of listen to what happens here in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel's going to interpret a dream. He says... Uh, it says, Daniel in, in Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 25, it says, And Daniel replied, There are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune-tellers who can reveal the king's, the king's secret. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. While your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. He... He who reveals secrets has shown you what was going to happen. And it's not because I am wiser than anyone else that I know a secret of your dream, but because God wants you to understand what is in your heart. In your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge, shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of a statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms, silver, and its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron. And his feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. As you watched, a rock was cut from the mountain and not by human hands. It struck the feet of the iron clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces, iron, clay, bronze, gold, and silver. Then the wind blew them away without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. That is the dream. Now we will tell the king what it means. Your majesty, you are the greatest king. The God of heaven has shown you sovereignty and power and strength and honor. He has made you ruler over an inhabited world and has even put wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. And he goes on to tell him more and more about what has happened in this dream. And then King Nebuchadnezzar rewards Daniel. Daniel explains all the details, and I won't, I won't cover all of them, but he goes into in, all the details about each section of, of the golden statue that was destroyed. it says, King Nebuchadnezzar threw himself down before Daniel and worshiped him and commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burn sweet incense before him. The king said to Daniel, "Truly, your God is the greatest of gods. The Lord over kings, the revealer of mysteries. You have been able to reveal this secret." Then the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon as well as the chief over all his wise men. So Daniel, and it even talks about it not only in chapter 2 but also in chapter 4, Daniel Daniel gets put in charge of the wise men, the magi. 500 years before Jesus was ever born, the people of Israel thought that their lives had been destroyed because they had sinned against God, and God had allowed their enemy to come in and take them into captivity, that everything was over. Things were not going well. It's not good that we have done this thing, and now we've been taken into captivity And these people have rule and reign over us, and this is not a good situation. Just like some of us are looking at the situations in our lives going, this is not a good thing. Where we are right now, the things that we're enduring, the struggles that we're having, this is not a good thing. And then God gives Daniel a vision to show the king exactly what's going on in his dreams. And, And what happens is Daniel gets put in charge of the wise men. Now these wise men were people that, that, that practiced another religion. And, and they, they, they saw a lot of power in fire and stuff like that. They studied a lot of, of the stars. That was one of their big things. They studied the stars a lot. They were very very much into astronomy. And, and they, 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 they were very important people because they were responsible. Later on they became the Persian kingmakers. What happened was, is that when people were were seen to be the next king in line, they would have to study the law of the Medes and the Persians. And they would have to go and learn under the Magi. They would have to go and be taught these ways of the the Medes and the Persians, and they would have to be brought up in this way. Things like like mathematics and and reading and, and very special skills that they would be taught under the Magi. And when the time came for that Persian king to be named... Who was the one that named them king? It was the Magi I said, you're ready. You're now king. Daniel gets put in charge of these guys who were Persian kingmakers. 500 years before Jesus ever came on the scene. Now, Daniel is a very godly man. Over and over again, you see, I mean, we saw him get thrown into a lion's den as a result of his faith in God and the fact that he wouldn't, he wouldn't bow down and worship anybody. It's, it's going to be God and God alone, and if you throw me into a lion's den, so be it. I'm just going to worship God anyway. It doesn't matter. And we know that he got rescued out of that oven. And we know that his friends got rescued out of the oven. We know that he got rescued out of the lion's den, that he got saved from those lions that were supposed to devour him. Daniel's a very faithful man of God. So who in the world could have told a bunch of magi about a Messiah that was to come? How about a guy that's in charge of the magi now? How about a guy who knows the prophecies of old? The guy that knows that there's going to be a Messiah to come. The guy that that, that knows that one day God's going to bring somebody into this world to save it. You know what I think happened? If we look at scripture and we look at who's in charge of them, I think Daniel told these guys stories about a, a Messiah that was to come, a savior that would be born one day. And he said, You need to be on the lookout for him. You need to be on the lookout for him. So what happens? Let me tell you something. When when the Magi came to find Jesus, and by the way, it wasn't at his birth. He was probably a toddler at this point in time. When, when, when he, they came to find Jesus, because they were so powerful and so influential, that when the Magi showed up in Bethlehem, when they showed up at Herod's front door, he was afraid. Because it wasn't three guys on the back of a camel. It was three guys, four guys, ten guys, a hundred guys, who were Persian kingmakers, showing up with probably half the Persian army, because there were such influential political figures in that time, they would not come by themselves. They would have showed up with the entire Persian army behind them saying, hey, we're here to see somebody. Can you tell me where he is? You think King Herod was afraid because he heard that the king of the Jews had been born? He was afraid too because the entire Persian army with these, three, with these wise men, not three, I said three, with these wise men had shown up. And he was, they were looking for this Messiah that was to be born, and they've been doing their their whole stargazing thing and and it's like God impressed upon their hearts that they were supposed to go and find the king of the Jews. You think about how humbly Jesus was born, he was born in a stable, possibly uh like a lean to there's some people that say, according to if you look at You know, the way the Hebrew wording is that he could have been born in like a lean to kind of thing. He could have been born in a cave, somewhere where they kept animals, basically, is what we know. So he was more than likely kept in some place where they kept animals. We don't know exactly what, what it looked like, but we do know that he was he was wrapped up in strips of cloth and he was laid in a feeding trough. And here the Magi show up, and they're looking for the king of the Jews. And Herod says, where is, where, is he, where is he supposed to be born? They said, Bethlehem, we know it. That's what the prophets say. So, the magi make their way to Jesus. When then, came, then Herod, verse 7, called for a private meeting with the wise men and learned from them the time when the star first appeared. He told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. When you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they, gave, then they opened their, their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. So these wise men show up. Now, if you think about Mary, we talked about in Luke chapter 2 how Mary, once the shepherds had shown up telling them what they had seen, and they came out of nowhere, and they came to worship Jesus when he was born. And they said, man, we were just in the presence of a heavenly host, and we saw them proclaiming the glory of God that was to be born right here in this place, and let me tell you what we saw, and what we found, and what we, what we experienced. It says Mary treasured all these things in her heart and now our little boys growing up and these magi show up these persian kingmakers show up at her front door you know what i think god was saying here you see israel didn't recognize him as king king herod is starting to get wind of the fact that there's a king being born and he's intimidated by the fact that there's another king and he wants him dead so he tells the magi, he says, all right, find out where he is and then, and then let me know so I can go and worship him too. He's really wanting to take him out. Because he knows God's at work. Mary knows God is at work. Because God was at work some 500 years through a person named Daniel. Preparing a way so that Persian kingmakers would come to Mary's front door and say, this is. Is the king. This is the king. God was saying, Israel, if you won't call him king, I will bring pagans from the east to come to this door and say, This is the king. He was king. Whether Israel acknowledged it or not, he was king. Whether Herod acknowledged it or not, he was king. Whether we acknowledge it or not, he's king. It doesn't change who he is based on what we think about him. It doesn't change who he is based on what rulers think about him. Jesus is king. And as a matter of fact, these these wise men, these magi, come and they bring gifts to him. What gifts do they bring? Well, they bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We know that, right? We see it on the Christmas cards. That's why a lot of people think there was three of them because there was three gifts, Right? That's how they get it all messed up, and that's why they think, well, it must have been three of them that gave him three gifts. Not everybody that came had to have a gift to give him, and it's not everybody. There may have been multiple of them that gave him gold. There may have been two or three of them that gave him frankincense. There may have been eight of them that gave him myrrh. You know, we don't know necessarily, but a lot of people think there's three because there's three gifts. And here we see them giving gold. Gold is a representation of the fact of what? He's king. A king deserves precious things. So, this king is getting gold from these, these Persian kingmakers. These people have had this, this legend told to them and reinforced by God showing them that, that a king has now been born, the king of the Jews. So, God was saying, no matter what, he's king. And they also give him frankincense and myrrh an unusual gift to give a baby. Burial spices, things that you would anoint a body with given to a young baby. Unusual, right? Not only was he king, but he was a king that was sent to die. From the very beginning, he was pointed towards the cross. From the very beginning, his humble beginnings, he was destined to die. That was his purpose. That was God's plan for him. He was to die. Now, if you look at things from an earthly perspective, you see the Israelites devastated because they've been taken into captivity. And now they're under the rule of somebody else, and nobody likes to be in control by somebody else. They wanted to to be able to worship however they wanted to. They wanted to be able to do their own things. They wanted to have their customs, their beliefs. And they wanted to do that in their homeland, but they couldn't. And it looked bad. But the whole time God said, no, 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 I'm preparing the Persian kingmakers to come and crown your Messiah king one day. And you look at this baby, born in a stable, laid in a manger, given burial spices. And you would look at it and go, well, that's a very sad story. You look at it from the outside going, you give a baby burial spices, that's a terribly sad story. And from an earthly perspective, it does look sad that from the very beginning this child was destined to die. But that's not the story that we know. We know a miraculous story an unbelievably incomprehensible, unimaginable, loving, gracious Father who sent his Son to die for us to save all of humanity. Not to condemn them, but to save them. It doesn't look on the surface like a good story. But it's the best story ever told. So as you look at your life and you see the things that are going on in your life. And you think, well how can this work out to my good and God's glory? How can this possibly... Think about Jesus. Think about the way that it looked from the very beginning. He didn't even have a place to be born, so he had to be born in a stable. He was given burial spices by some guys from the east. His whole life as he he taught in the synagogues, all the synagogues pointed towards Jerusalem. So as he was standing there and he was looking out the back door, you know what he was looking at? The place that he would ultimately die. He was looking at that mount where he would ultimately give up his life for every one of us. From the very beginning, he was destined to die. And it doesn't look like a good story. What about you in your life? Do you look at things and go, man, this doesn't look very good. It doesn't look like it could turn out to be a good story. I want to encourage you to take your eyes from right here and right now, what you can see, and put your hope and your faith in what you cannot see. Just like we do through the person of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Actually, going to put it up on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter four, beginning of verse eight, it says, "We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we do not, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We are knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in death in, in the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies." Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus, so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but as but this has resulted in eternal life for you. But we continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith. The psalmist said, "I believe in God," so I spoke. We know that God who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus to present himself together with with you. All of this for your benefit. And as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be a great thanksgiving and God will receive more and more glory. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed day by day, for our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we do not look at our troubles that we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on the things that, we can't, that cannot be seen. For these things we see now will soon be gone. And the things we cannot see will last forever. Do you look at the situation in your life right now and think, there's no way this could be good. There's no way this could be serving any purpose. There's no way that it, it could be doing any good. Do you look just right here and right now with a, with a limited gaze? Or do you expand your gaze and look to heaven and see things the way God sees them? Look, I know that a lot of people are hurting because of the holidays. I know that it brings a lot of things to mind because our hearts are softer. Our, our, our minds are uh, on family, on friends, on ourselves, on the people we love. Our hearts are, are just wired that way. And at Christmas time, it just, it just overwhelms us. And sometimes there's a certain amount of sadness that comes even with Christmas. I want to encourage you to not be sad. To understand that this is not the end of the story. That that, that what you see and what you hear right here and right now, this is only temporary. That there is a God at work in your life and He's doing things you cannot even imagine. And you need to fix your eyes on what you cannot see. As hard as that may be, as difficult as it may be to trust, it's exactly what God's calling us to do. Let me pray. Father, we are so moved by you and God, what you have done through the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, we are going to take this time in just a few minutes to celebrate with you, to commune with you, to draw close to you as we take in the Lord's Supper. God, my prayer is that people would take this time, Lord, to pray, to repent of sin, and to draw close to you. Lord, here at Simple Church, I know that we don't do things the way it's done at other churches. But God, I, I just want our hearts and our minds to be right. And I don't care about the pomp and the circumstance. I care about us being close to you. So Lord, thank you for allowing us to take this time. For allowing us to to just be close to you. For allowing us to remember the body that was beaten beyond our comprehension. To the point of being barely recognizable as a human. To the blood that was shed. God, and this all came from a tiny baby that was born for each and every one of us. The fact that you came as a human being in human form to be able to endure the punishment that we all deserve, to be able to endure all the things that, that, that we have done wrong, and how we have sinned against you. God, that you took the punishment for all of that. You tell us in your word that we're supposed to take this time to remember, to remember who you are pray that we do that it's christmas it's the time when we celebrate you god but the greatest reason we have to celebrate is the sacrifice that was made through you so lord may we take this time to get our hearts right i people take this communion this this lord's supper may they take it whenever their hearts are ready God, whether it it be after a prayer here, after they come down to the altar, or or maybe it's when they go home, maybe it's not, not until a week later that they're ready to take this time to commune with you. God, whatever the case may be, pray that people would get their hearts and their minds right. God, that we would take this time to remember you and draw close to you. Be honored now. In Jesus' name everyone please stand things here is that you take it when you're ready our men are going to pass it out if that's not today if it's tomorrow if it's a week from now a month from now six months from now six years from now you get your heart and your mind ready and then you commune with the lord